Amen. If you'll open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 50 tonight, and as you're doing so, let me publicly thank our interns. We are coming to the completion of our first intern year, and uh, as you know, this has been the inaugural intern year for our uh, church, and we are so delighted for those that uh, are our interns, and so make sure to uh, give them thanks for their, their duties and their work as they continue through their studies. So thank you to Ron tonight leading us in our liturgy. Psalm 50, a psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him a mighty tempest. He calls to heaven above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifice do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills, and all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Perform your vows to the Most High. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. But the, to the wicked, God says, What right have you to recite my statues or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with the adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself. But now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then, you who forget God, lest I tear you apart, and there be none to deliver you. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me to one who orders his way rightly. I will show the salvation of God. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word. He may be seated. Speaking to a Sunday night crowd like this, I don't think many of you are overly familiar with being in a court of law, perhaps as a juror, but surely not as a defendant, but uh, perhaps maybe some of you had a checkered past and may have been in a courtroom for that reason, but I'm going to assume that most of you are unfamiliar, and therefore most of your knowledge of a courtroom probably comes from media. That is, of movies and TV. So the courtroom that you're probably familiar with is Judge Judy, or the People's Court, or high-profile celebrity courtroom cases, as we've seen in the last few weeks, none of which are reality. Have you ever noticed how reality TV is hardly ever really reality? Meaning that this reality courtroom, as it is called, is not so much. It is that which is entertaining. It is not serious. 
All of it is no doubt pandering to the TV. But the true courtroom, the court of law, is not a place of entertainment. We could also say that the church and preaching is not entertainment either, so be careful of those that you see on TV that do such a thing. That is a discussion for another time. There is nothing entertaining about the courtroom, especially if you are the one that is on trial. In fact, I would say that all those that have been on trial would tell you that it is utter dread. Literally, your life, your freedom hangs in the balance And unless we understand that reality, unless we understand what it's like to sit in that seat, then we truly do not understand the courtroom fully. Well, Psalm 50 tonight gives us that reality. It puts us squarely in that seat. And I tell you, it is not a fun place to be. If you understand Psalm 50 correctly, It is not a fun psalm. In fact, it should come with a warning label, like the CDs of old that would have that warning on the front, but instead of having a warning of explicit lyrics, this should have a warning of convicting and condemning lyrics. That is Psalm 50. Indeed, Paul says that all Scripture is useful for rebuking and reproving and correcting and training Well, I don't know how else to say this than other than Psalm 50 is a rebuke. And it is a needed rebuke for all of us. And so if you come tonight and are thinking that you wanted a a lighthearted sermon, a few points and a joke, well, that's not what you're going to get. You might have to undergo tonight heart surgery And the reality is that is exactly what our hearts need. Our spiritual hearts needs to be corrected. It needs to be rebuked. It needs to be reproved so that we would live righteously, so that we would be men and women after God's own heart. Indeed, that is what we have in Psalm 50, in this courtroom scene. God is indeed putting his people on trial. And so we'll see that in three points tonight. God the judge, God the prosecutor, and then God the sentencer. First, God the judge. If you remember, last time we were in the Psalms, two weeks ago now, we looked at Psalm 49 with Pastor Myers. And it's a good reminder that the Psalms aren't just randomly thrown together. There is an order, there's a sequence to them. Even though they are not written by all the same author, they have the similar themes that, that run throughout, and oftentimes the, the psalmist or the one that compiled the psalms is trying to put together a message. And if you remember in Psalm 49, perhaps just turn back a page, you remember that it is a call to all people. Psalm 49 verse 1 says, give this and hear this, all people. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. The message, therefore, is given to all, and it's very proverbial in nature, and the wisdom that is given there is not to trust in riches or in wealth, for they will fade and they will perish, that no money can ransom and redeem. 
In fact, if you remember that psalm, it says, man in his pomp will not remain. Rather, he'll be like the beast that perishes. When he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. Well, Psalm 50 is not a psalm for all people. Yes, the Lord indeed is the judge of all and will judge all, but the psalm that is before us tonight is a judgment specifically against his people. You see that in verses 4 and 5, don't you? He says that I have come and I call to judge my people. He judges his people, his own, his covenant people, those that call upon his name and take the name of the Lord upon their lips. And that is significant. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4, for a time of judgment is to begin, and it is to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, Peter says, then how much greater will it be for those that do not believe? But Peter's point is that judgment begins with the church. It begins with the people of God, you and me. That indeed we go through fiery trials and we go through suffering. In fact, the book of Acts, as we've been working our way through it, we hear that from the lips of the apostles themselves through many tribulations, we are to enter into the kingdom of God. That is a form of judgment. It's not a condemnatory judgment. It's not to bring condemnation on us. It's not to bring denunciation or final judgment, but rather it is to sanctify us and to perfect us, to make us more like Christ. Like that psalm and that song that we sing so often, the flames shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. That is what this is. Psalm 50 is a call of repentance. It's a call to heart work and not just mere externals. Well, look who it comes from. It comes from our God, a God who is indeed transcendent and glorious and powerful and mighty. I know in the U.S. courtrooms, I'm sure this is probably common around the world, that the common decorum is that when the judge enters into the room, all rise as a sign of respect, a sign of solemnity of the moment. And that judge walks in with his black robe on, a symbol that he is now functioning as a judge. And it's symbolic of the power that is invested in him. It's not altogether different why we typically wear robes as we preach. It's a function of our official role as a preacher and proclaimer of God's word. But when that judge enters into the room, all eyes are upon him. And that is exactly how this psalm begins. It's how this psalmist describes the Lord. All eyes are upon him. All eyes cannot help but to be upon him because this is no ordinary judge. This is the judge, the judge of all judges. Notice how it begins. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. It's a little bit lost in translation here, but this psalm begins with the three names of God, El, Elohim, Yahweh. 
In other words, God, the God, Yahweh or Jehovah or the God of gods, the Lord God, the covenant God. That is the one that speaks. He is the one that summons the earth. Again, much like the courtroom when the bailiff calls for all to rise because the honorable so-and-so is now presiding, so too here all mankind, all of earth is to rise because the court is now in session. The judge has entered into the room, but this is the judge, as I mentioned, of the entire earth, as it says, from the rising of the sun to its setting. In other words, there is no place in this world where it's not a part of his jurisdiction. It's all within his rule. It's all within his reign. And it says that he comes forth, verse 2, from Zion, the place of his presence, the place of his dwelling. And he comes in perfection, the perfection of beauty. And it is this God, our God, that shines forth, it says. And this God is too great, too awesome, too glorious. So much so that we know from the rest of scriptures that angels that are not sinful, that are not fallen, cannot even stare upon the unfiltered glory of our God. It is far too radiant. It shines forth the perfection of his beauty. And if that is true of angels, then how much more mankind, this holy, 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 thrice holy God, holy to the infinite degree, that is our God. And when we think about it, if we can even begin to imagine how glorious and awesome our God truly is. And I tell you, the, the glorious thought that you can have, the most glorious thought, is far too small, far too meager. We truly do not have a clue how awesome our God truly is. It is indeed, take your breath away, cannot breathe glorious. You remember when anyone in the Bible came into the presence of God, it was not a casual encounter. The person usually was face down in the dirt because they could not handle the glory. As encounter, and that was a vision in the temple. And Isaiah says that I am undone. Literally, I am coming apart. And if God came in his glory into this place this night, that's exactly what it would be like. It would be like ground zero of a nuclear bomb going off. We would be vaporized in his awesome glory. That is the God who comes. And indeed, as it says in verse 3, he comes and he does not keep silence. He has something to say, and he's going to say it, and all are going to listen. It says that he is a devouring fire, a consuming tempest. Indeed, the author of Hebrews says the exact same things, for our God is a consuming fire. No doubt the author of Hebrews got that from this psalm, Psalm 50. 
And as a result, everything, everywhere declares how great and awesome and righteous he is. It says there in verse 6, for God himself is judge. You hear what the psalmist is saying. We cannot miss it, can we? All the heavens, all the earth declare his righteousness, his perfection, his beauty, his purity. It is this God that judges. And so does he have our attention? He ought to. Well, we see in the second point that he is not only the judge, but he is also the prosecutor. And what does he have to say? Well, this psalm captures the very words of God. God here speaks in the first person. You see that this psalm was written by Asaph, and no doubt Asaph is speaking as a prophet, a mouthpiece of God. It is thus says the Lord. You see that in verse 7. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Well, what are the charges that this God wants to bring? What is it that would rile God Almighty up, that he would get off his throne to come down? You would have to think it's quite important, right? Quite serious. So much so that he says this cannot continue to happen. What is it? What is it that he is so concerned about? Is it cultural or social injustices? Is it some type of gross sin, of murder or genocide, or perhaps even of a school shooting? Not to downplay any of those, but that's not what God comes to judge his people about. Rather, it is worship. His worship. The worship that his people are bringing before him. And he says that I have this against you, that the worship that you offer is bad. It's putrid. It is not a fragrant offering. To say it nicely, it's a, a putrid pile that God, our God, will not accept. And notice, it's not that the people are not doing it. It's not that they are neglecting worship. No, they are, quote-unquote, worshiping. And it's also not a matter of the form in which they are worshipped. They have the proper form of worship, but it is the manner in which they are worshipping. Look at verse 8. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. Notice that. They are continually bringing these sacrifices. And God says, I, I do not rebuke you for that. That's not the problem. A form of worship is not the issue. Rather, it is the heart. That you are bringing heartless worship. It's going through the form, the routine, the exercise, and thinking that is good enough. And quite simply, God says, I don't need your worship. He says, you act like I need your sheep and that I need your bulls. Notice that. Verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your fold. Why? For every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills. All of these things are mine already. And they are on loan to you. 
And then he uses some rhetorical questioning. He says, if I were hungry, would I tell you? For the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or to drink the blood of goats? Children, does God get hungry? No, he does not. I know that all of you get hungry. My children often act like they've never been fed before. They're always so hungry, always so starving. And we always tell them, child, you just ate 30 minutes ago. I think you're okay. We've even been known to put up a a post-it note on our refrigerator that says, do not open, don't come for another two hours. Don't feel bad for them. Just look at our grocery bill. You'll know that they eat just fine. So unlike us, God does not need food. He does not get hungry. He does not have a body like man. Verse 13, do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? You act like you are bringing me a favor by doing this, that you are giving me something that I need. But God, indeed, is in need of nothing. It's the doctrine of aseity. God is completely independent. And he's the only one that is. And that is quite the contrast to ourselves. We are completely dependent. In fact, we heard about that this morning, didn't we? As Paul is preaching at the Oropagus, he says it's in him that we live and move and have our being. We cannot reverse that. It's not that God is the one that in him or that in us he lives and moves and has our being. No, it's in him that we live and move and have our being. He is the creator, and we are the creatures. In fact, in verse 21 of this psalm, he says, You thought that I was like yourselves. All the resounding picture and theme that is throughout this psalm is that he is not. Again, from Acts 17, as we heard this morning, Paul says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he's needing anything, since he gives himself to all mankind, life and breath and everything. If not that, if God doesn't need our sacrifices, if he does not need our worship, then what is it that God desires? Well, God is not looking for the act of worship. It's not just going through the motions. He's looking for the heart. He's looking for the mind. Indeed, he's looking for all of us. That is what the Lord desires. That's what Paul tells us in Romans chapter 12, is it not? Present your your bodies, present the whole of yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God for this. And I would say this alone is the spiritual act of worship. And so what is this first indictment that the psalmist, that God is bringing before his people? It's the indictment of formalism. But he goes on, he's not done It gets even worse, more convicting. He says, those that confess the name of God, yet their lives demonstrate otherwise. In other words, there's hypocrisy. We see this in verses 16 through 20, that you take my covenant upon your lips, you recite my statues, but yet you hate discipline. You cast my word beside you. You see a thief and you're pleased. You keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongues frame deceit. You sit 
speak against your brother, you slander your own mother's son. In other words, your, your mouth says one thing, but your life demonstrates something totally different. There's no consistency between the confession of your life and the, the evidence of it. Says he casts off discipline. You cast off my word. You steal. You commit adultery. You bear false testimony. Do you see the connection here? That he is not speaking to do different groups. He's not indicting one group and then indicting another group. No, he's indicting all people with this. These are not different groups. Yes, he's first talking to the formalists and then second, the hypocrites, but they are one in the same. And why is that? Because if you break the first tablet of the law, you will also break the second tablet of the law. If you do not honor God and his worship, then you will not honor your fellow man. It is the consequence of one to the other. As we often say, orthodoxy leads to orthopraxy, but the opposite is true. Heterodoxy leads to heteropraxy. And I say that this psalm should convict us all because we want to say, well, yeah, that's probably true of the person out there, but, but, but God, I'm, I'm the one that shows up for church. I'm the one that even comes on an evening, a Sunday evening. No doubt you're taking attendance, and I should get a gold star, perhaps even two gold stars. But I think what the Lord would say to us tonight would say, do you think that I need you? Do you think that I need your glory? Do you think I need your worship? All of creation is mine. All of it gives me glory from the greatest and furthest galaxies to the subatomic particles of this earth. The great and small is all mine. Do you think you give me something that I do not have or that I am in need of? No, 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 you have it all wrong. I am not in need of you. You are in need of me. I do not need your worship. You need to worship me. Otherwise, you have life completely askew. You have life upside down. I say this so often when we come to worship, we are not putting life on pause. We're not taking a, a time out from our schedule and, and doing our, our religious duties, doing our religious service, our, our good deeds for God, our, our good gold star for the week. We don't get merit badges for coming to church. No, when we go, we're not just putting life on pause. And then when we get done, we're going back to our regular schedule, our regular broadcast, which is already underway. No, when we worship, this is life. This is life rightly aligned. Us as creatures giving glory and praise to our God for who he is. We're not doing something extra. We're not doing something special. This isn't just the frosting on the cake, so to speak. This is the entirety of the cake. This is exactly what we were created to do. We're doing that which we will do for all eternity. And so God doesn't need it. We need it. Otherwise, our life would be completely askew. Therefore, it does not matter if we go through the motions, if we're offering up heartless 
worship. If we're offering up hollow worship. It reminds me of the, those big, wonderful bunnies that you used to get at Easter time. You think you have this huge piece of chocolate, and then you bite into it and find out that it's completely hollow. And you're so disappointed, aren't you? At least I was disappointed as a kid, thinking I was getting all of this chocolate, when in reality I was just getting this, this thin layer. That's exactly what heartless worship is. And yet how often we are guilty of it. We're singing with our mouth, but our hearts and our minds are elsewhere. We're listening, but we're not really listening, are we? We're not bringing that word into our hearts and our minds and our souls and and meditating upon it. We're not thinking about it after we leave this place. We go out from these doors and we go on our way and we go about our life like nothing ever happened. J.C. Ryle says that there's no use taking our bodies to church if we leave our hearts at home. And that indeed is an indictment against us all. We do not want dead formalism. And I say that is especially convicting for us. We as reformed people, we that like to take pride in our worship, those of us that like to say we we worship in the right way, we worship God's way. No, there is no credit for right worship used wrongly. There's no credit if you leave this place and you get in your car and you put your seatbelt on, and you adjust all of your mirrors, and you put your hands at 10 and 2, and then you go out and drive on the wrong side of Atlanta Road. You've missed the point, haven't you? You've done everything right, wrongly. You've used it for a wrong purpose. So too, worship that misses the heart and the mind and the body and the soul. Right worshiped used wrongly is indeed damning. And God says, I will not have any of it. And God indeed says to each and every one of us, this is what I have against you. And we have to say, guilty as charged. And so let us keep right worship. It's not the problem with our worship, is it? It's having right worship, but using it rightly, using it with all of our hearts and all of our minds. As many of you know and have been praying for, we are in the midst of a, a music director search, and that is exactly what we want. That is exactly the kind of person that we need to, to lead us into the heart of worship. Every Sunday, as the life of this church and this congregation, because we see how important it is to our God, it's not a, a minor aspect of our worship, that which we bring to the Lord Likewise, our life is to be a reflection of the God in whom we confess. The roots ought to bear fruits. That's what Jesus says, does he not? In Matthew chapter 7, a good tree cannot bear bad fruits. And a bad tree cannot bear good fruits. Our lives are a reflection of what is within. And so what is the dominating influence in our life? If it is the Lord, as we would confess And we need to be putting to death the things of the flesh and living in the Spirit and having the the fruits of the Spirit that are living out of us. When there's life-dominating sin, 
It is demonstrating that there is an, an idol that is capturing our heart and capturing our minds. And we're giving it worship rather than giving God worship. What this psalm really says is nothing different than what Jesus says when he speaks to the Pharisees. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching the doctrines and commandments of men. And so we do not want formalism. We do not want hypocrisy. We do not want legalism. We do not want antinomianism. As Luther famously said, too often we are like a drunk on the back of the horse that we are falling off on one side of antinomianism and then going and falling off on the other side of, of legalism, neither which are the true gospel. And so what is the solution? Well, the solution is given to us in that wonderful parable in Luke chapter 15 with the prodigal son. Really, it should be called the parable of the, the two sons. You remember the, the oldest was a, a formalist. He had right actions, but wrong motivations. And the youngest son was a hypocrite. You might say that he had right motivations. I'm not sure if you would, but he definitely had wrong actions. But both were equally wrong. And I think what that parable is saying is that Jesus is condemning both of them. But what is it that changes? Well, nothing changes until the youngest son realizes that he missed the father. That the whole time he was at home, the father was there, but he missed him. He didn't realize it. He had forgotten that all that he was to do was for the father. All he did was to be in service to the father. And so he returns from that far off land. And what does he find? A father that is there ready to criticize and to condemn no, rather, a father that welcomes him home. In fact, runs to him with open arms. Why? Because he finally got the heart right. The heart of service. The heart of worship, didn't he? And you remember that, that parable ends not knowing if the, the older son came to repentance. And that I think that's the point of that parable. Is that it was really a, a call to the Pharisees that we're giving right worship, but in a, a wrong way, in a heartless way, not seeing the Savior, missing the Lord. Well, worship and service with the right heart is always the cure to formalism as well as hypocrisy. Well, third, then, we have God the sentencer. The prosecutor has laid out a flawless case it is watertight. It's an open and closed case, as they say. Guilty is charged. And who is the guilty? We are the guilty. And so the judgment, the just sentence comes. What is so amazing about this psalm is that even though we are condemned, even though the, the justice of God is flawless, the righteousness shows our unrighteousness, and yet at the end of the psalm, we do not see condemnation. We do not see a, a just sentence given, but rather we see amazing grace. Right? It would be right of God to say, away from me, you who give this heartless worship, 
Do not come into my presence anymore. In fact, be cast out to the outer darkness of hell itself. But that is not what we get. Rather, we get a call to repentance. Mark this, verse 22. You who have forgot God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver you. The one who offers thanksgiving as a sacrifice glories me, glorifies me. To the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. It's a call to confession. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to give thanksgiving and sacrifice right worship that glorifies me. Why? Because at the very end of this psalm, it gives the sole reason, because I will show you the salvation of God. In other words, when the sentence should come, when we are guilty and condemned, and the the verdict should be that you now go into utter judgment, rather we hear the words of grace and forgiveness and indeed salvation. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, is it not? But while we were dead in our transgressions and sin, God made us alive in Christ Jesus. And that is why I think it is so significant that you see what the next psalm is about. Psalm 51. Is it a coincidence? I think not. It's a, a psalm of forgiveness, a calling out for that forgiveness of God. Have mercy on me. O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. Do you see what the psalmist, the one that is putting these psalms together, takes this psalm of Asaph and then butts it up against this wonderful confession of King David and says, that's the heart of worship. When we understand that, when we understand the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God, that's what God does. That's what God desires. That is worship that is truly glorifying to our great and glorious God. As we come into his holiness, when we come into his perfection, as we come into his beauty, out of Zion he speaks, he shines forth. And where does he shine forth in the greatest way? He shines forth in the greatest way at Calvary, where he shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins through the son giving of his life as a ransom and a redemption. And all the more it gives us reason why we would want to worship him rightly from the heart out of love and adoration for our great God who would be right and just to condemn us but yet rather gives us all things in giving us the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it that God does not need a bull or a goat or any of the cattle on a thousand hills? Because God has his son the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. It's him that we worship with all of our hearts and with all of our mind and with all of our soul. And Lord willing, we will be able to do so for all of eternity. Well, join me in prayer. Our gracious God, Lord, thank you for convicting us. Thank you for rebuking us. Thank you for putting us in that seat a judgment seat, Lord, as we are those that 
are on trial. And Lord, we would confess to you this night that we are guilty. Many times we have come into this place and we have not given you worship or we have given you half-hearted worship or a a half-mind. We have not presented ourselves fully to you, O Lord, and we know that our God is great and as glorious as you are. A God that has given all things, including your very Son, demands our life, our all. And so, Lord, we ask for forgiveness for it. But, Lord, we are so grateful that instead of condemning us, Lord, you call us again to yourself. Just like the father looking for the prodigal to return came running with those arms wide open, so too, O Lord, you receive any sinner that comes in repentance, comes with confession, and who's willing to give of his heart once again. And so, Lord, like John Calvin says, we present our hearts to you again, sincerely and promptly, O Lord. And that is what you want. And that is what you desire. Would we give you that type of worship? And Lord, would we give it not only this day, this night, this week, but Lord, by your grace and through your spirit for all of eternity. We pray in Christ, our Savior's name. Amen.